This morning, I want to uh, just share with you a message, and really this is more preaching, but I'm going to answer a question, and, uh, but, uh, and you'll understand as we get into it, but I believe that this question is really as pertinent as any one that has been asked because of where we're at as a nation. And so uh, the question was this, and then I'll share a little bit before I get into Scripture with you, is how do I not judge? You know, there's a lot of misjudgment in our nation right now. There's a lot of things that are happening because people are seeing one thing and making a decision based off what they see as opposed to actually finding out facts. How many of you realize we live in a nation right now that that's rampant? You know, and really, I'm going to use this word, but you'll understand what I'm saying by this. There's a lot of prejudice that's happening right now. Now, how many of you realize there's a difference between prejudice and racism? You do realize there's a difference. Prejudice is pre-judge. It means I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to make a judgment about you before I know any facts about you. And so I'm going to look at you and look at the surface... And I'm going to make a determination based off what I see without ever having a conversation with you. Here's the difference. Racism says I'm better than you. There's a difference. And we have this problem in our nation. And much of, much of the, what we're seeing right now, uh, much of the turmoil that's happening is because people are making assumptions. I'll just give you some examples. All cops are bad. How many of you know that not all cops are bad? I mean, you know, uh, you know, and there's lots of things that we could fill in the blank with in that. I mean, because the truth is we don't know facts. We know what we've been told. So I would caution you to be careful what you listen to, what you feed into, because you realize you're hearing a version of the story. If you think the media tells us the story, you're fooled. And I'm not taking a side. But this much I know, we're, a, we're a, a, without law and order in our nation, we're chaos. So we, we gonna, if we think it's bad now, you know, uh, it's bad. I mean, I remember uh, this was back in 99. I was in New York on a trip and I had teenagers in North Brooklyn. Most people don't realize this. North Brooklyn's the worst, most crime committed in the city of New York. And I have about 50 teenagers rolling through the neighborhoods because we, that was where we were sent that day. During the day, it's fine. The cops come by in a big old van and they said, hey, y'all need to leave. I said, okay, we're, you know, we're getting ready to go. And about 15 minutes later, they came by and said, hey, no, seriously, get in the cars. Y'all need to leave. About five minutes later, they came back and said, hey, we're leaving and we won't be back until the morning and we will not come in here to get you. So get in the van. And guess what happens when everybody knows the cops ain't coming? Chaos ensues. So we have to be careful to not feed into what people... Because look, everybody... I don't care how... I think you all are wonderful. If you tell me a story, there's three sides to it. Yours, theirs, and the truth. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Very rarely is it that somebody actually says something for the way it actually happened word for word. Why? Because it's skewed by us. It goes through us as a filter. And so we have to be careful even with what we perceive to be fact. Because facts aren't always truth. 
So we have to be careful. You know, and so, you know, so I do believe that this is very important for us as a nation right now. But it's also very important for us as Christians. Why? Because the Bible speaks about it a lot. So I've got lots of notes that I'm not going to get to. I'll just tell you that right now. But the Bible speaks to this very much. And and it really should be for us as Christians. This should be a hallmark of how we live our lives. Is that we should not have prejudice in our life. Now we also should not be racist. This is just... My opinion, and you can take it for what it is, I believe that if you tend to lean that you are better than another person, when you get to heaven, God's going to make sure that your house is right between that, those people. Now, I've experienced racism on different levels. I mean, I obviously grew up in the South, so I understand that, but I moved to Kansas. Well, there wasn't a whole lot of black people. I saw four black guys one night in Taco Bell, and I started staring at them, and I was like, and I didn't realize, and I caught myself and I laughed because I grew up around black people my whole life. I went to church with black people my whole life. And all of a sudden, I hadn't seen black people in months. And I was like, black people. There was no racism between white and black. But there was a lot of racism from white to Hispanic and Hispanic to white. And I mentioned it one time in our youth service. Our kids looked at us like, we're, like I was nuts. They're like, well, we don't dislike black people. And I said, who said anything about black people? I said racism. And so we have to be careful that we don't allow those. And here's the other thing. It's more than just a raising up and an upbringing. Because experiences will also distort your view of reality. So you just have to be careful. And it's where you really have to uh, live a life before the Lord and keeping your heart right. Because guess what? Of every race, of every creed, of every background, there's good people and there's bad people. You know, and I'll I'll just use this as an example because I know it doesn't apply necessarily to you in here. You know, there are good people that are Muslims, that are not extremists, that are not radicals. And they're trying to be good people. And there are some radical Muslims. But, you know, we also have some radical Christians, too, that do some pretty stupid stuff. And they hurt people and they do things in the name of God that aren't... Go, go, go read about the Crusades. It was a march through Europe in the name of God. And they were murdering people. So just because we're Christian and they're whatever doesn't make us better. See, we can, we can judge somebody else just in our Christian faith. Well, you know, I'm saved. I've been redeemed. You're going to hell. I'm better. Now, we may not say that, but it's definitely the attitude of the heart. And and so we have to be careful. Why? Because they are a split-second decision away from being just like you and me. That's all it is. It's a decision, and it happens in a moment. So we have to be careful in these things. So I want to read some verses to you this morning. And some of these are very familiar, but... um, I want to read them to you. And so we're going to go to Luke chapter 6 to start here in verse 35. Luke chapter 6 verse 35. It says this. It says to love your enemies. You're like, man, I thought we were talking about not judging folks. I am. We're going to get there. Just stick with me. It says love your enemies and do good to them. Let me rephrase that. Do good stuff for people you can't stand. 
They ain't got to be your enemy, but you just don't like them. You ought to do good for them. It says, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. I don't even like them. Why would I give them money? It says, then your reward from heaven will be very great. You're not looking for a reward from somebody. You're living a generous life before the Lord. And He will repay it. And He says the reward will be very great. And you will truly be acting like children of the Most High. Now think about this. Think about what He's saying. It's It's up here on the screen. So hopefully you can read as well. It says, For He being God is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Now what did it say right before that? You will truly be acting like children of the Most High because He is kind to the unthankful and the, and the wicked. If He is kind to the unthankful and the wicked, guess what? We as His children should be kind to the unthankful and the wicked. Well, we can't do that if we're judging folks. Now, we'll get into some things. In verse 36, He goes on and He just presses in a little further. He says, You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Now, see, here's the thing. We want God to be compassionate and merciful and gracious with us. We just don't want to do that with others. We want a different standard. We want God to just, you know, give us a pass on all of our bad things. But then we want to come down hard on other people. And here it says, be compassionate just as your father is. In verse 37, it says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others and it will not... or or. It will come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. I'm just going to make this statement and we're going to move on. Because I can hear somebody saying, well, I know I'm forgiven by the blood of Jesus. What did Jesus say himself? Forgive others and you will be forgiven. If you harbor things in your heart, you will answer to God for that. If you allow unforgiveness to stay in your life. Verse 38, we always use this for giving, but it's not in context for the giving of finances. He's actually talking about judgment here. And he says, give and you will receive. If you want people analyzing your life, judge other people. Stay involved in their life. Tell them what they should do. If you don't want people telling you how to live your life, quit telling people how to live their life. Right? I mean, you're tired of people being in your business? and stay out of their business. It's a seed that you sow. It says, give and you will receive. And not only will, it, will you receive it, and I think it's kind of funny because it says, your gift. Remember, we're talking about judgment here. Yeah. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more and running over. And it will be poured into your lap. Now that sounds great when we're talking about finances and the blessings of God coming. Pour it out, man. Drop it in my lap. It'd be awesome. What about when we're talking about judgment that we have rendered to others that now comes back and wants to sit in our lap? Not quite as joyous now, are we? That's not quite as, where do I get in line for that? It's more like, can I get the pass? Like, how how, how can I skip that route? Because I I don't want to receive back what I have said and done and, and, and given to others. And it goes on in the last part of verse 38. It says, the amount that you give will determine the amount that you give back. The amount that you give is the amount that you'll get back. 
Now, I'm trying to lay some groundwork so that I can actually answer the question, which is, how do I not judge? The Bible's very clear in this subject about judgment. There's one who gets to judge, and we're not it. We're not judge, jury, executioner, although human nature wants to be. We're not it. So we have to be careful about how we perceive things and how we believe things. I remember when I first got saved, a lot of people didn't believe me. And I gave them every reason not to previously. And I had a choice. Either I was going to get offended by their uh, not believing that I was legit. Or I was just going to live a life that would prove it out. And that was my choice. Because I had given them ample opportunity to not believe. I mean, I had people that were aggressive towards me. In the fact of, I mean, I'll just give you an example. I had an usher one time pin me to the wall in our church foyer as a thousand people are walking by me, basically ripping me a new one, for lack of a better term, because I was talking to her in church. Well, I'd brought a friend to church with me who had never heard anybody speak in tongues. He was like, holy cow, what is that? And I'm trying to explain it to him. And that's what we were talking about. But see, that guy made a judgment that I was just being disruptive in service, although I was trying to be quiet. And to be quite honest, as a 17-year-old kid, I wanted to punch him in the face. <laughs> uh, just being honest with you. Like, don't, like, you know, I'm old enough and big enough, don't pin me up against the wall. <laughs> but he had judged, based off of a previous experience with me, which was accurate, But he made a judgment based off that, but it was wrong. It wasn't right. So we have to be careful that we don't even allow our past circumstances and past experiences with people to cloud our judgment now. We have to be careful about these things. Now, here's one of of the ways that I believe that you keep from judging people. And it comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm sorry. Chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? It says, Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, the worship of idols, commit adultery, that are involved in prostitution and practice homosexuality, that are thieves and are greedy people, are drunkards and abusive and cheat people, none of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. So he gives kind of a litany here. A list of people who, hey, they're not going to enjoy the kingdom of God. But in verse 11, he says, or he says, some of you were once like that. Some of you were once like that. Well, what happened? If I can't enjoy the kingdom of God, but, and here it says, at one time, some of you were once like this. It says, but. Sometimes buts in scripture are really good for our advantage. Because he's saying, look, because really what Paul is saying is, all of you were one of these. All of you can identify with what he just listed. And he says, but you were cleansed and you were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 11 out of the Amplified Bible says this. It says, and such were some of you at one time, but you were washed clean and purified by the complete atonement for sin and made free from the guilt of sin, and you were consecrated, set apart, and you were justified or pronounced righteous by trusting in the name of the Lord. 
Now, why do I say this? And really, what am I pointing to? All of us minus Jesus are a wreck. All of us minus Jesus are going to hell. And it doesn't matter how good of a person you are. The Bible says our, our, our best righteousness is like a filthy rag before God. So none of us are good enough to earn heaven. The problem is, is that we get into a mindset of being saved and being, you know, and that God is, has poured out his blessings into our life. And then get, especially given some time, we forget where we've come from. We forgot where Jesus found us. Now, I know some of us have uh, seemingly greater testimonies in the natural. Here's the truth. I have a testimony that's not so great. My wife, she lived pretty, I mean, she was very much protected. She doesn't really have, uh, in, in natural terms, a testimony. But before God, me and her are the same. It's no different. She didn't drink. She didn't smoke. She didn't do all these things. She didn't go party. She didn't do all these things. She also didn't have all the baggage that I had from my sin either. So, but her testimony is just as valid and just as valuable as mine. Why? Because I was a sinner who needed grace. She was a sinner who needed grace. And so just because somebody else may have a past who's dirtier than mine that makes me feel better doesn't give me the right to now feel better about myself. Judgment always comes from this point of view. I want to push you down... So that I get picked up. And I'm going to push you down so that I get up. It's an ego thing. And so, you know, and we have to be careful in our lives concerning these things. Because if we'll keep in mind, and part of that comes out of humility. Because pride will rob you, but also out of pride comes judgment. Well, I'm better than you. That's what judgment does. I don't do that, and you shouldn't either. That's pride. I'm better than you, so you should act like me. None of us are good on our own. I'll speak for myself. I'm not good on my own. I'm a much better version when Jesus is in charge of my life. When he's in control, when he's operating, when he's moving in my life, I'm a much better person. And we have to remember where we've come from. There's an example of this over in the uh, book of Luke, chapter, uh, chapter 7. An account where we see this. Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee. He's going to eat dinner at somebody's house. At one of the Pharisees. And it says here, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home. And he sat down to eat. It says, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful uh, alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Now, I think it's interesting, even the language here, that it says, when a certain immoral woman. It didn't just say a woman. It could have just said a woman who had met Jesus, who had a follower of Christ. No, it points out her past. A certain immoral woman comes to Jesus. Just so you know, this jar is not just some perfume. This stuff was very valuable, about a year's wages. So take what you make in a year and go put it in a little bottle. Now, now you got this in context. 
And it says in verse 38 that she knelt down behind him at his feet, weeping, and her tears fell at his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. It says, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw him, he said to himself, so he didn't say this out loud, he's just thinking this. He said, if this man were a prophet, if he was really a man of God, he would know the kind of woman that's touching him. That's pride. If Jesus was legit, he would know what kind of woman, because she's dirty. She, she's filthy. I can't believe, and, and, and it does, I bet he's thinking, I can't believe she's in my house. He's probably already told to help. When she leaves, y'all start scrubbing. So if Jesus was a man of God, he would know what kind of woman that's touching him. She's a sinner. See, he forgot he was. He thought he was righteous. He thought he was good. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon, in all of his arrogance, says, go ahead, teacher. Speak on. Then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 to the other, but neither could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one for whom the, uh, he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. So Jesus is looking, or has turned to the woman, but he's talking over here. See what's going on? So he, what's happening is Jesus has moved close to her so she can hear him, but he's talking to Simon. But he didn't want the woman, the woman to miss on what he was saying either. Jesus goes on and he says, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust off of my feet, which was customary. In other words, that was just normal protocol when you had a guest in your home. But she has washed... Then with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss from the time I came when I first came in, but she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, and she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many. Jesus is not kind of giving her a pass on her past. He's acknowledging it. I know exactly who this woman is. Yeah, she's got a lot of sins. Have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. You know, one of the things that we have to be careful of, and really one of the things that, and you can equate it this way too, and we'll look at this here in a few minutes, is that the love of God is a symbol of His mercy. In other words, you could actually say it like this, is that a person who has been forgiven little shows little mercy. See, you've forgotten that mercy saved you. Not even the grace of God saved you. It was truly His mercy if you want to get technical about it. Like, well, I don't believe that. I've never heard that. Well, it's pretty simple, quite honestly. It's not hard. Here's the difference between grace and mercy. I don't even see it in my notes. I'm going to do it from memory. So, this is mercy. Mercy says you don't get what you deserve. 
I deserve death. I deserve hell. I deserve not to be ransomed. I deserve to be destroyed by my sin. But mercy says you won't be. Now grace says you have life. You have healing. You have blessings. You have all these things. You didn't earn them, but you get them. Mercy saves me from who I was. Grace enables me to be who God's created me to be. So even with that in mind, we have to be careful. Look, I'm a very analytical person. I walk into a room and I start scanning. I'm diagnosed like this. Y'all don't think I'm funny, but when I walk into a restaurant, I don't just sit anywhere. When I get on a plane, I'm looking at everybody. Y'all look at me in the eyes. You, get up from that book. I, I need to see you. I need to know if you're crazy. Because if so, baby, you need to sit by the window because I need to be in the aisle because we got a fool behind us that if he tries something stupid. See, I, I'm, I'm always, but even, and, and that can be good. Being analytical can be good, but you know, it can be bad too. Because I come in and I make snap judgments. Well, a lot of times I'm wrong. So that can be bad. And I have to be careful that I'm willing to extend mercy to other people. Why? Because it was extended to me. So I have to be careful to not live in a place where I am judging people, trying to exalt myself by pushing others down. Why? Because it skews even my spiritual sight. It skews my ability to actually accurately represent Christ, to reach people, to love people, to build the kingdom of God. Why? Because that's the reason I was saved. That's the reason you were saved. And we don't want things to skew us, but our judgments and our presumptions about people will affect our ability to love people. It will affect our ability to extend out mercy to people. Now in Matthew chapter 7... I'm going to read this out of the message translation because it's a very familiar passage of scripture. But I love the way the message translation. This is the passage of scripture where he talks about don't try to get the speck out of your neighbor's eye until you get the plank. So in other words, let me put it in modern terms. Don't try to get the sawdust out of your neighbor's eye when you've got a board sticking out of yours. But this is the message translation. I really like the way that it says some things here. Starting in verse 1, it says, don't pick on people. Sometimes our criticism is just that. We're not feeling so good about ourselves, so we're going to criticize somebody else. We're going to put them down because it makes us feel better. And it may be on the smallest levels. Man, look how dirty their car is. I just washed my car yesterday. Look how beautiful it looks. Man, I'm more godly because you can see the shine coming off my car. Look how clean my wheels are and look how dirty theirs are. Man, Lord help them. <laughs> and I know that seems petty, but do you realize how many times we make those kind of thoughts and decisions about people? That we see somebody or we know something. I mean, let me even take it to a kind of another deeper level. Oh, well, they go to so and so's church. Oh, man. Well, you know about them people. Don't make a judgment about a church that you've never even been to. And you're like, well, I did go. 
Just because it wasn't right for you doesn't mean it's not right for somebody. This church can help people that the Lord sends. But some people are going to come here and they're going to be like, this ain't for me. That's okay. That's why there's not a church. There's churches. Why? Because they're different folks. Some people just don't like me and that's fine. I like me and God likes me. And my wife likes me and my son likes me. And that's all that matters. (laughs) Quite frankly. That's all that really matters to me. As long as, you know, my wife and my son and my father like me, then everybody else is up for negotiation, I suppose. But we have to be careful not to allow those judgments to come in, like more into our sphere. Oh, well, they're not spirit-filled. Well, they act more spiritual than a lot of spirit-filled people I've met, so let's not go there. If we're really spirit-filled, we should actually be different. You should see more evidence of the life of God in us than we should in some of our brethren who have not been filled with the Spirit. And yet some of them are more godly and some of the most godly people I've ever met were not Spirit-filled people. Why? Because they were actually walking in the light they had. So even in that, we can make judgments about people that are grossly wrong. Like somehow that because we're Spirit-filled, we can dabble in sin a little more. Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? I mean, what does the Bible say? It says you are accountable for what you know. So if anything, there's a greater burden on us as spirit-filled believers. Because we have an understanding of an area. And I can guarantee you, you can go find somebody who is not spirit-filled. And they have understanding in areas that we probably don't have as well. And here's the thing. God's going to look at everybody as an individual. He's going to look at you, and you're going to answer for your life. You're not going to answer for somebody else's life. I'm not going to answer for somebody else's church. I'm going to answer for this one. Why? Because this is the one the Lord has put me in. What so-and-so does, cross the way, down the street, on the other side of town, I love them, I pray for them, but I'm not responsible for them. So we have to be careful not to just jump on the bandwagon. You know, last week, LSU loses. Everybody's giving me criticism. This week, LSU wins in a blowout. Nobody said a word to me about how well LSU played. All y'all just need to repent. Just telling you. Hogs are good for eating, right? So, put them on the rotisserie. Now, we have to be careful... Not to make judgments. We have to be careful not to jump to conclusions. It says here, don't pick on people. If you don't want people being mean to you, don't be mean to people. So don't pick on people. Don't jump on their failures. Don't criticize their faults. Don't kick somebody while they're down. Unless, of course, you want that same treatment. If you encounter somebody on their worst day... Put yourself in their shoes and say, how would I want somebody to treat me on my worst day? Let me put myself in their place. I love the way the message says this. It says, that critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. Does anybody not know how a boomerang works? Now, I have a couple and I have rarely successfully thrown one that it came back to me, but I've gotten close. 
gotten close. Quite frankly, I was a little scared to catch it because it's wood and it's flying really fast. And I'm like, you know, how does a boomerang work? You throw it and it comes right back. That's what we in the church call seed time. Harvest comes back around. That critical spirit. If you're tired of your boss being so critical of of your work, quit criticizing those that you work with. That's one thing if you're a manager and you're a position. People are accountable for what they work. If you're not the manager, it ain't your business. You do your job. You do it as unto the Lord and the rest will work out. In verse 3 it says, It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you, when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again. Playing the holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. If believers as a whole would focus on their life between them and the Lord and keeping their heart right and stay out of everybody else, the church would be a lot better place. It goes on, it says, wipe that ugly sneer off of your own face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. I love the way it says that. In other words, it says when you get your stuff straight, you might be ready for God to use you to help somebody else. But just because your stuff is in order doesn't mean that you're really even ready. So we got to be careful. So even when we're talking about not judging, that's the question. How do I not judge? Keep it all in perspective. Keep your heart right. Keep the focus on, hey, where have you come from and where has God brought you to to this point? And know that, hey, you're still a work in progress. And so is everybody else in this room. And that's okay. Because by God's love, by God's grace, by God's mercy, I may not be who I was, but I know that I'm not who I want to be, but I am on my way to get there. And I never want to be satisfied and just say, well, I'm good. No, I want to have that press. I want to have that fight in me that always is saying, God, what, how can I grow? How can I stretch? How can I be more in a place to where you can use me greater? Our life and, and, and living right before the Lord is not just about living right. It's about getting ourselves in a place so that the anointing of God can flow through all of us. You know, the anointing of God is supposed to flow through all the believers. Not a select few hierarchy. It's supposed to go through all of us. So we have to be careful to not develop a critical spirit. And it's easy to become critical. But we have to be careful. And I'll just speak from my own life in this. Typically when I'm the most critical of others, it's when I'm unwilling to deal with the things in my heart that the Lord's been dealing with me about. So I become even more critical. So one of the habits that I've created, and, and, and even in mine and Dara's relationship, we say this. Like, if I'm harping on her about something, or maybe a couple of day or two or three goes by, and, or in the reverse, where she's just kind of harping on me about something, we've kind of gotten in the habit where we say this, you need to go spend time with Jesus. Because there's something in you that's not right. It has nothing to do with me. And we're not ugly about it. And what are we saying? You need to go, you need to go have a time out. You need to go be alone with the Lord because something's not right in you and you're, take, and you're projecting that on me, but it has nothing to do with me. So anytime that you find yourself being overly critical or harshly critical, it's time for a self-evaluation of your own heart. 
So how do you not judge others? Judge yourself. Look at your own. You're like, well, I thought we're not supposed to judge ourselves. Well, the Bible says you should. Paul wrote in uh, Corinthians, he says, to test yourself to see if you be in the faith. What do you mean, test myself? Check up. Look. Evaluate your heart. God, where's my heart at in relationship? Why? Because that's the filter that everything you're ever going to do and every person that you're going to encounter is going to come through the filter of your heart. If your heart ain't right, nothing you do can be right. See, even salvation, it's the greatest single act of mercy. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's mercy. While I was dead in my sin, when I rejected God, when I wanted nothing to do with Him, Christ died for me. That's mercy. And we're called to walk and live a life of mercy. So this is another aspect. How do you not judge people? You've got to be in a place where you're willing to give mercy. To give out mercy. Now, I said this a few minutes ago, but I want to remind you about this. Mercy is not about what they deserve. Mercy is about what you've decided. I don't care if my personal thoughts and opinion. What I'm going to do is be motivated by the love of God to treat you in accordance to the way of Scripture, which it says to love my enemies. It goes on, it says to even pray for those who would despitefully use you. I mean, this New Testament life is not an easy life in the sense of that it's all about our heart. It's not just about the externals. It's about our heart. It's about what's happening on the inside. And so even when people mess up and whenever people may not be doing what they should do, are we going to extend mercy or are we going to dole out some judgment? Because it said there in in Luke that Whatever we give out is what we're going to receive. So if I need more mercy from God, which I don't know about you, but I'm kindly and very fondly aware of how much mercy I need in my life because I'm not perfect. By any stretch of the imagination. Now, I want to help people, and there's a a degree of telling the truth in love, but this is also my qualification for that. Inside the context of that you know that person. You don't get to be an idiot with an opinion and a Bible and tell people, this is what the Bible says. You go build a relationship with that person. You pray for that person. You spend time and make the investments into that person. And then wait for the Lord to tell you when it's time to speak into their life. You're like, well, that sounds like a lot of work. Somebody spent a lot of work on you too. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody loved you. Somebody reached out to you over and over and over again. Somebody did it for you. You can do it for somebody else too. We shouldn't quit on people. It's a lot easier to have an opinion than it is to pray. But yet opinions don't change things, but prayer does. Right. See, here's, here's, part of the, here, here's one of the differences, because these words are, are used in Scripture, and, and you kind of have to look into them. It's the words of mercy and compassion, and they're different. Give you an example. Like it talks about that Jesus was moved with compassion for the crowds. He saw 5,000 men and then their wives and their kids. And he says that he knew they were hungry and he had compassion on them. In other words, he looked at them and said, they're hungry. I could use some to eat too. 
But it was out of his mercy that he met the need. Because they didn't deserve dinner. And you can see this throughout Scripture. There's times that people got healed in Scripture. And they, and they begged Jesus, have mercy on me. In other words, let me have what I don't deserve. How many of you remember the story of the woman who came to Jesus? She had a daughter who was, uh, um, she was demon-possessed. And she came and she was a Samaritan. Talk about racism, Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. The Jews looked at Samaritans like second-class citizens, like somehow they were of a purebred, pure breed. But yet the Samaritans were some stepchildren. That's the way they looked at it. Jews would go out of their way to not walk through Samaria. You know, the, the shortest distance between two points is A to B, right? But they would do this and add a day and two to their journeys just so they didn't have to walk through the land. I mean, can you imagine saying, hey, I'm going to go to, I don't know, what's north of Missouri? Iowa? Is that what's the next state up? Something like that, I don't know. But either way, but saying, you know what? I refuse to drive through Missouri. So I'm going to drive to Oklahoma, Missouri, into Nebraska, and then I'm going to come over. That's what the Jews did. And so this lady comes to Jesus. And he asked for, his help, for him to help her. And he says, why would I give the children's bread to a dog? That's pretty strong language. And yet this woman had, a, had the ability to look past even what Jesus had said to her. And said, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. And he even says, it's not right to take the children's bread, which was the children of Israel. He says, it's not right to take what's intended for them and give it to you. And he told her, you're not eligible for this. You ever had somebody tell you that? Like you want a new cell phone and you're not quite at that, whatever the limit is. And you call and they're like, oh no, you're not eligible yet. you got two more months. Jesus is telling you, you're not eligible for this. And she says, no, but in your mercy, you can do this. And he did. It's not what she said, but that's what she was appealing to. She says, look, I realize I'm not a Jew and I realize that you're sent to the Jews and I don't deserve this. But I'm asking you to help me. And out of the mercy of Jesus, he helped her. See, we're called to live this kind of life. So this is, I'm going to kind of paraphrase some of what I just said. Is that compassion says, I feel for you. But mercy says, I'm going to do something for you. It's like when you're driving down the road and you see them people with the signs. Vet, need, need food, hungry. We'll work for food. Abandoned, stranded family, need help. You can drive by them and have compassion. And you're moved. But if you don't have money to do anything to help them, you can't extend mercy. Why? Because you don't have the capacity to give mercy. But if you're moved and you've got extra money, you can actually extend mercy by helping them and blessing them. Now, here's my caveat on that. Be led by the Spirit. You don't stop at every person. But if you feel led by the Lord, if there's a compassion in your heart, you ought to take a moment and say, Lord, I need to help this person. We want to be generous people. So pray. And the Lord may say yes, and He may say nothing. If He says nothing, keep on trucking. Well, what are they going to do with the money? Go buy them a burger then. I mean... 
And I was, I'll tell you, give you an example of this. Here a while back, I was at our Taco Bell here. I'd order some tacos. They screwed up my tacos because I'm anal and I don't like lettuce, quite frankly. And uh, especially iceberg lettuce is like, I don't even understand the purpose. It's just nasty. And uh, so anyhow, so they put lettuce on my tacos. And I'm like, hey, this isn't what I ordered. Could you make the tacos for me? When I was walking in, I saw a guy who was sitting outside, obviously homeless. And he was just sitting out there. And so I asked him, I said, hey, what are y'all going to do with these tacos? The ones I don't want. They're like, oh, we're going to throw them away. I said, hey, can I take them to that guy out there? Y'all going to remake me some tacos because I paid for them. But don't throw those away. And they said, well, yeah, I don't care what you do with them. I walk in there and say, hey, you want some tacos? He looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like, sure. God bless you, man. Have a good day. Walk off. They were going to throw the food away anyways. Yet I had an opportunity to help him. So you don't just have to give people money. If you're that concerned about it, go buy them a meal. Bring it to them. So compassion says, I feel for you, but mercy acts for a person's benefit and blessing. We can extend out mercy. Now I want to read to you a very familiar passage of Scripture. and I've read this many times, but I'll tell you what. Let me go back. I'm going to read this out of the brick. I'm going to change it. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. Um, I know it. I'm sorry. It's 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. How do you not judge people? This is it. You love people. You love people even beyond what maybe makes sense in your mind. And I tell people this all the time. Because, and when they ask me. They say, what's the hardest thing about being a pastor? And it's real simple. It's not hard. It's knowing the worst about people. And being able to believe the best. Because... The bad thing about being a pastor is that most of the time you're with people at their worst moments. They don't call you when everything's good. They don't call you when their kids are doing well and everything's great. They call you when their kid wants to commit suicide and they need you to come talk to them. They call you when the marriage is falling apart. Hey, we've already filed for divorce, but hey, we're going to give it one last shot. What you got? I'm just welcome to my world a little bit. That's the hardest thing about being a pastor by far. By far. It's knowing the worst, but being able to look beyond the worst to say, I still love you. And I believe that this is not the end. And I believe that God can work. And I believe that God will work. And I believe God can do more out of this moment than what I see right now. And being able to speak hope into the midst of despair. How many of you know that's impossible in the natural? It's not possible. It's impossible to be able to to naturally look at things and just be like, "Mm, I'm glad I ain't you. But there's something on the inside which has nothing to do with me. It's the love of God that will minister to people. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, it says this. It says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. So it does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no uh, record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures everything through every circumstance. It says prophecy in verse 8. And unknown tongues and special knowledge will all become useless. But love will last forever. 
Now, I took these four verses, and many of you have, have, and I've shared this before, and I made a confession out of it. And for years, I put it on my uh, computer screen. I printed some out here. I don't know. We may still have some floating around here somewhere. Who knows? But uh, I took 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8 from the Amplified Bible, and everywhere it said love, I put the word I. I made it like a confession. So that when I'm on the phone with somebody, I'm like, man, I would like to tell you what I really want to say right now. (laughs) I had that little reminder on my screen that says, but this is who you are. And I can't tell you how many times that little thing hanging on my screen helped me. I'd be sitting there counseling with somebody and I'm like, man, I'd like to tell you something right now. And I'd be looking over there and and those scriptures would begin to roll through my heart again. I'm patient. I'm kind. So I want to read it to you. If you'd like one of these, I can get it to you. If we don't have any, I can get one to you. But I know some of you have never heard this. But um, So I'm taking the word love and I insert an I. So I made this a confession. That, man, I, and I still use this thing. I still quote it a lot over my life because I need it. And if I'm not going to judge people, it's going to require that I love people. I mean, ultimately, if you don't want to judge, you've got to love. That, that's the bottom line. So it says this. It says, I endure long and I'm patient and I'm kind. I already don't like it because I don't want to endure long to start with. And yet it says that I can because the love of God has been put into me. I endure long and I'm patient and kind. I'm never envious nor do I boil over with jealousy. I'm not boastful or vainglorious. I do not display myself haughtily. I'm not conceited or arrogant or inflated with pride. I'm not rude or unmannerly and I do not act unbecomingly. I, God's love in me, does not insist on my own rights or my own way, for I am not self-seeking. I'm not touchy or fretful or resentful. I take no account of the evil done to me, and I pay no attention to a suffered wrong. I do not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness, but rejoice when right and truth prevail. Because of God's love in me, I can bear up under anything and everything that comes. Because of God's love in me, I can bear up under anything and everything. My marriage has fallen apart. If you let the love of God work, you can stand. You can bear it. Like, yeah, but what, what do you mean? God will work if you'll walk in love. It says, I bear up under anything and everything that comes. I'm ever ready to believe the best of every person. My hopes are fadeless under all circumstances, and I endure everything without weakening. My love never fails, fades out, or becomes obsolete or will come to an end. The love of God on the inside of me. The Bible says that if you're saved, that the love of God has been shed abroad in your heart. In other words, the love of God is in you. How many of you know it's a decision sometimes to walk in love? The majority of the time. Me and Dara have been married now over 13 years. It's not always just fuzzy feelings and happily ever afters. There are days that I'm tired and I'm sitting on the couch, but I choose to serve her. There are days that I, that I don't want to deal with people and I don't want to be inconvenienced and I don't want to reach out and to love people and to minister to people, but the love of God in me will compel me to do it. See, and that's true for all of us. Y'all think just because I'm a pastor that that's what, I, that's what we're called to do. Don't buy into that lie. And it says here that my hopes are fadeless. In other words, I don't quit praying. Like, oh, well, it's a done deal. 
No, I serve a God of the impossible. So I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep standing. Why? Because the love of God in me won't let me quit. The love of God in me won't let me quit being nice to that person who's a jerk to me all the time. The love of God in me won't let me quit being nice to that neighbor that I just can't stand. But the love of God in me, it just compels me. It just compels me. It just compels me. And I can't help it. Because I'm actually going to live out Scripture. And I'm actually going to be what the Bible calls me to be, which is light and salt in the world. Which means we have to be countercultural. You insult me, I will love you back. You slap me, I'll turn the other cheek. Now that's going to take a whole, 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 whole lot of holding down the flesh. What did Jesus say? You look the other way. You know, Jesus never gave an instruction that he doesn't believe that we can do. Why? Because in the natural, no, none of us can do it. You hit me, sucker, it's coming back. <laughs> Counterpunching. Drop you in a moment, you know. But yet the love of God can cause things to happen in you that you thought, man. Those things that you used and those people that maybe, many times it's family. You know your family so well. You know all these things about them. And, well, this is this and this is that. And, well, they're in that situation because of their own choices. You need to honestly ask the Lord. You know the hardest people in the world to minister to is your own family. Hands down. Hands down. And yet the love of God in you will give you not just the ability but the opportunity to speak into them you know it's the greatest two commandments love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind and strength and the second is very much like it which is to love your neighbor as yourself how do you not judge people number one and this is true I'm on, this is my last little nugget for you this morning if you're going to love others you've got to know how much you're loved first you've got to know that God loves you that God in His mercy and God in His grace has saved you and delivered you and, and, and has healed you. And out of His mercy, now we get to experience His gracious love towards us. That we can't comprehend, we can't, we'll never figure it out. But out of that, when we truly understand who God is to us in relationship to us, is that He is a good Father who loves us, that now I can go out and be a good friend. I can be a good neighbor. I can be a good co-worker. I can be a good husband. I can be a good father. Why? Because I understand that I have a good heavenly Father. And I understand that I'm loved by Him, not based off of what I do, but because of what He decided about me. Because He decided that I love David. And because of that, Jesus died for me. Because God said, I love Mike, Jesus died for him. Because God says, I love Tamala, Jesus died for her. And see, out of that, all of a sudden it can change the way I see people. It can change the way that I approach people. That I'm not just trying to make it through life. No, I'm trying to see people come alive in the power of God. By His goodness and by His grace. And so every opportunity and every person I look at, it it goes through this filter. Does God want to use me to reach them? How can I touch them? How can I speak into their life? And it may be very insignificant. But if I'm a piece in the puzzle, then I did my part. But if I judge them, I've already said I can't touch them. I can't reach them. 
just like that woman that came to Jesus. If Jesus was a man of God, he would know what kind of woman. He knew what kind of woman that was. He wasn't fooled by it. He wasn't shocked. But because he loved her, he had the ability to speak into her life and to minister grace and, and mercy to her. So if we have that mindset, have that, you know, the Ephesians about Jesus says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ, that he was a servant, stepped off of the throne and came to be a servant. We're called to serve. We're called to love. We're, we're called to extend out mercy. And it doesn't just mean when people, when we deem people deserve it. That, I mean, I remember years ago, me and Dara were talking and she said, we did some personality test and I was real low on the mercy, like real low. Like, might as well just not even a registered low. And, I, and we were talking about it, and I said, sure, I'm merciful to those people I think deserve it. That, that's exactly what I said. That's exactly what I said. Because I have judged them, and they don't deserve my mercy, so I ain't giving it to them. Well, that it completely goes against what mercy even is. I mean, that was my response. I mean, I pray that I've grown since then. Sometimes mercy is just giving somebody what they don't deserve. It's kindness in the face of anger. It's love in the face of of, of even assault, if you will. We have to be careful as believers. We want to live lives where we can reach and touch people. And yet this one area, and even in our nation, I said this in the beginning. Man, it's rampant in our nation right now. People are quick to make judgments. But they don't want to make the investment into people. And that's part of what I believe is creating the culture in which we live in right now. It's part of what we're seeing in the news. But we as the church are to be light. We're to be different. We're to make a difference, show a difference, be a difference in people's lives. And as long as we'll keep our heart right before the Lord, then God can do great and mighty things. He'll touch our city. He'll touch our region. He'll use our church to touch people we would have never reached simply because we just had a heart that says, God, I want eyes like you. Let me see people the way that you see them. Let me love people the way that you love them. Doesn't mean I'm always going to want to do it, but the love of God in me can create that in me.